This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine and the director of the Chambry Center for Research and Black Culture. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Terrence Hayes, a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, current poetry editor at the New York Times Magazine, distinguished professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh, and distinguished writer-in-residence at New York University. His many honors include a MacArthur Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a National Book Award for Poetry. Welcome, Terrence. Hey, man. Good to be here. Good to see you. So the poem you've chosen to read is Fire by Matthew Dickman. Tell us what in particular about this poem caught your eye as you were sifting through the archive. Well, naturally, I thought about my own poem, which of my own poems I would pick. And then I sort of backed up and recalled reading this poem and thinking that they're in conversation. Uh, So I wanted to figure that out with you today just to see what these two poems are doing with each other. Well, let's give it a listen. Here's Terrence Hayes reading Fire by Matthew Dickman. Fire. Oh, fire, you burn me. Ed is singing behind the smoke and coals, his wife near him, the rest of us below the stars, swimming above Washington State, burning through themselves. He's like an Appalachian prince, Henry, with his banjo and whiskey. The court surrounding him and the deer off in the dark hills like the French, terrified but in love and hungry. I'm burning all the time, my pockets full of matches and lighters, the blue smoke crawling out like a skinny ghost from between my lips, my lungs on fire, the wings of them falling from the open sky. The tops of Michelle's long hands looked like the beautiful coats leopards have, covered in dark spots. All the cigarettes she would light and then smash out, her eyes the color of hairspray, cloudy and stingy, and gone but beautiful. She carried her hands around like two terrible letters of introduction. I never understood who could have opened them, read them aloud, and still thrown her onto a bed, still walked into the street she was, still lit what little fuse she had left. Oh, fire, you burn me. My sister and I, and southern comfort, making us singe and spark, 
the family ash all around us, the way she is beautiful to me in her singular blaze, my brain lighting up, my tongue like a monk in wartime, a wash in orange silk and flames. The first time I ever crushed a handful of codeine into its universe of powdered pink, the last time I felt the tangy aspirin drip of ecstasy down my throat, the car losing control, the sound of momentum. This earth is not standing still, oh, falling elevator. You keep me, oh, graveyard. You have been so patient, ticking away, smoldering, you grenade, oh, fire. The first time I ever took a drink, I was doused with gasoline, that little ember perking up inside me, flashing, beginning to glow and climb. That was Fire by Matthew Dickman, which was published in the April 5th, 2010 issue of the magazine. I'm so happy you picked this poem. Uh, it sounded so great hearing you read it. It's a good poem. <laughs> it is. I love the end with all these O's. You keep me, O graveyard, mm-hmm. uh, O fire. What does that do for you, uh, seeing it? I mean, the whole poem just kind of like flickers back and forth between these images and these feelings. So I kind of think that's what it's doing. It's just sort of these little bursts of insight. So it almost sounds narrative, but it really does sort of unravel and glow and climb, as he says. So it's sort of like the story just climbs right on down the page. And how do you feel, I know how I feel, about the people who appear, Michelle and Ed, how does that work in the poem? Uh, Man, you sound like we're in class or something. I I don't know. Um, Because I I love that. I mean, I love that Ed is singing. You know, I I never really find out who Ed is. Right. It's It's, all very cinematic, right? mm -hmm. Um. I think I really get a little closer to the page when he brings up his sister. Uh, but there's also that moment of Michelle's long hands. And so what I kind of get after that is like the leopard spots covered, you know, dark leopard spots on her fingers and this notion of cigarette. So he's almost doing these sort of gestures. They can almost have any name, but it's those mm-hmm. little images that come back that are really what I hold on to at the end of the poem. And then this voice, you know, he's the one we don't. You know, is it Matthew Dickman? Who is it that's sort of recording this scene? Is it some version of himself? Is this something that was in his notebook? I mean, it feels true, but it also feels well, dramatic in the way that, you know, fire is dramatic. Sure. I think also for me that, um, let's call it chattiness, the way you can just talk about someone as mm-hmm. if you know them. Right. It, it refers to sort of uh, Frank O'Hara or, or sure. his poems, but... You know, the people in here aren't as famous. Maybe maybe that's just time. Yeah. But it's also, I think, some of the point of the poem is that anyone can have these insights. I mean, it yeah. feels that way. It feels like the people in the poem, but the people in the world are special, and they carry their hands around like two terrible letters of introduction. And, I right. mean, there's real, you know, there's real poignancy, passion, but also, you know, pain that he, I think, evokes... Uh, in the local, as it were. Yeah, but you know, um, the way the names come, they kind of come like they do in O'Hara. So when mm-hmm. Frank O'Hara says Joan or Alan, we do kind of have a hunch, although there's lots of Jones and Alans. So for me, when I see that Ed, I think about like Ed Scoog. Ed Scoog. How do you say Ed's last name? S-G-O-O-S-K-O-O-G. You know, great poet. They're from around the same neighborhood. So maybe it's him, maybe it's not. Yeah, it might be Scoog. Right. Who I knew since I was 12 or something in Kansas. Everybody knows Ed. So I I just sort of put that in it in the same kind of literary overlap that's sort right. of it's that's nice so to think of it as that kind of figure but but that is sort of the frank the frank o'hara move and you know so many people are influenced by o'hara like he cats he cast such a big shadow on like everything since 1968 i think when we talked about the, uh, another 
Dickman poem, Matthew, that is, um, uh, with Tracy Kay uh, a few weeks ago. And I wonder um, what it is about his poetry in general that sort of comes up in this poem. Right. Well, see, now now we're going to get into, like, some interesting stuff about popularity. I mean, part of it is part of the reason that people know Matthew Dickman is because he's been in the New Yorker so many times. But, you know, he and his brother, they just sort of write like regular poets. Uh, and it's really not their fault if the poems are pretty accessible and pretty warm like that. So it doesn't surprise me that she would pick him. But he is the kind of poet that you want people who don't read poetry all the time to experience, you know, because it's sort of not what it's longer even than might be maybe what people think of as a New Yorker poem, you know. But it is a really good model to say like, well, you know, there's room for everybody in these pages. Well, and I think it's uh, so ecstatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, obviously, the quote at the beginning, oh, fire, you burn me, right. which we don't know quite yet, you know, what the tone is of that, is mm-hmm. it? And he turns it into this refrain that I love. Um, and then he goes from kind of, uh, I don't know, the the burning of life to kind of the burning of, you know, the tangy aspirin drip yeah, of ecstasy, mm-hmm. which, you know, has that great double meaning that's right. uh, for him. But, you know, it becomes kind of a, a poem about drugs and, and mm-hmm. other states, altered yeah, states. Bacchus, Dionysius, you know, the god of wine is certainly the spirit of, well, you know, the spirit of his work, I think, actually. It's always a little bit wild. Um, again, you could just think about the line breaks in this, if anybody looks it up. They're not the kinds of line breaks he would get away with in, like, a graduate workshop. Everybody would <laughs> be like, oh, these lines have to look about the same length, or why don't you have any stanza breaks, you know, it's that sort of thing. But, you know... Admirably, I don't think of those as sort of his prime objectives when he's thinking about poetics or thinking about what his poems are doing. They are personable. They are, you know, I think it was O'Hara who talked about personism, you know, a conversation. Uh, Really, the poem is a conversation between a poet and a reader, I think he said. So it's like, it's for y'all to work that out. Well, I think there's also really strong breaks. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think we're agreeing on that. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just not... uh, Obvious breaks, right. singing, us, stars, right. state, prince, banjo, They're not regular deer. breaks, but they certainly flicker, you know, off yeah. to that margin in a way that suggests the energy. But there are no regular breaks, are they? I mean, do you, how do you break yeah. your poems? Well, I mean, actually, I do tend to want my lines to look about the same length. And it's just like a visual thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever that, even with sonnets, I'm like, well, as long as they look about like a box, <laughs> I'm all right, you know. So I have a problem with that. But that's also why I like a poem like this and why I like a poet like Dickman. Because, you know, I would say like as a person raised by, you know, a soldier and a prison guard, it would make sense that I would like boxes and structure right. a little too much. So I'm always looking for poets who can get me to sort of contemplate, like, would you dare write a poem with all the lines? You know, one line has three words on it. Another line has like, you know, 12 words on it. Like, I'm like... <laughs> Wow. It does bring one up. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been accused of having short lines, so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, right. I, I, I think I feel you. But there's something you can get a poet sensibility even by something like that line. Of course, you know we think about it as language solely, but something about even the visual way that we want our poems to appear says something about our our sensibilities. I think. Well, I love you know if you have a line like "You grenade, oh fire," mm-hmm. and you've earned it, like I think this poem does. What else do you need? Um, right. You know, but then again, you have a line like, I felt the tangy aspirin drip of ecstasy down my throat. Right. You know, that, I can't see breaking that. I mean, I might break it after ecstasy, but it's better that it's this whole drip, you know. Right. 
I would even say, like, again, this is something about wherever that line is between difficulty and accessibility, because I see that grenade and I think like, well, I knew that was coming at some point, you know, so that's not even a super surprise, unlike the line you just called up with the ecstasy in it. But it makes sense, though. It is a thing that you could argue for right. as coming in the perfect place in the poem. It's not the last thing, because then it would be too explosive. It would be too much. Right, right. He goes for something a little more tender, I think, and even sublime with the fire climbing. But I'm saying for me, when I see that grenade, I would be thinking there must be something more surprising. Or Yeah, but you, you know, you you, you can put grenades in your poems. Uh-huh. Well, it's about where you put them. You know. <laughs> as always is the case with grenades. It's all about location. So he gets away with it, but I even see that as a kind of daring, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of ease yeah. that I think poets sometimes in our, our sort of uh, allergy to cliche or allergy to obviousness and sometimes even the logic, we sometimes will avoid the, the clear thing. Well, I want to ask you uh, sort of lastly about this poem, about humor. Mm-hmm. And where does humor fit for you in, in this poem, but also, I guess, thinking about poetry more broadly? It's interesting because, you know, you do think if you do, is it Apollo and Dionysius, uh, Bacchus, you think of wine being very much a social lubricant. And yeah. so that's partly why I think about the charm and kind of sometimes ragged uh, freedom that comes in Matthew Dickman's poems often. And again, that's something that I chase. But I do think primarily of humor, as with Frank O'Hara, is just sort of being a thing that you can't quite control. Like, can you yeah. teach humor? So it's just a kind of a sensibility. Um, mm-hmm. I have an allergy for, like, you know, punchlines, but I certainly... Uh, an allergy or, t- or a, a like? Uh, uh, an allergy. I don't like punchlines. You know what I mean? I like stories. I like yeah, something that sort of accumulates as opposed to like, oh, well, if it's just a punchline, give me that first, man. You know, I don't like surprises in that way. Oh, so, I see. But see, humor, I only like surprises. See? I mean, I do like them, but I don't like them to be so neat. No, I agree I don't like with a punchline surprise. I like like a revelatory <laughs> surprise. So gradual. But the humor thing is sort of like the way we talk. I don't really... I mean, I didn't know I was funny till I was 25. So Correct. I don't really. Yeah, you know. I felt the same way. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was writing the poems that became uh, my second book, the Basquiat book. Yeah, yeah. I I read them aloud. I was working all serious right, and hard, right. and I was at a, a writer's retreat, and uh, uh, I read them to the people, and they were laughing. I was like, "What is going exactly, on? You exactly. you don't know how serious this is." Right. And then I was right. like, "Oh, that's the point is, yeah. is to let that air into the system." That's right. That's right. And I think everybody has it, but it's certain. It's certainly about being relaxed. So when you think about like teaching. You're just trying to say, like, it's okay if you have a range of feelings in it. You don't have to have one pitch all the time. And so that is where humor comes in. Because everybody can have a kind of humorous perspective. They just don't know that they have permission uh, in poems. Yeah, that's right. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. Whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So in the November 29th, 2010 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, New York Poem, which you're going to read for us now. Before you do so, is there anything you'd like to say about it or that could be helpful for listeners? I always like to say, well, I wrote it so I wouldn't have to talk about it. So, you know, that's going to be a challenge talking about it. But what I will say again is that sort of spirit of uh, celebrating one's friends. Um, You know, his poem uh, is sort of maybe a West Coast scene. I think of this as a kind of New York scene. And again, I remember thinking it was so odd to come in from the same sort of period, uh, 
around this. Uh, yeah, I mean, see how I'm stumbling? I can talk forever about his, but I'll just tell you. You can ask me some questions. I may or may not answer them with the poem because what I like to say is I wrote it so that so I would not have to, to talk about okay, it. Okay, fair enough. All right, uh, New York poem. In New York, from a rooftop in Chinatown, one can see the sci-fi bridges and aisles of buildings where there are more miles of shortcuts and alternative takes than there are Miles Davis alternative takes. There is a white girl who looks hijacked with feeling in her glittering jacket and her boots that look made of dinosaur skin. And R is saying to her, I love you again and again. On a rooftop in Chinatown in New York, anything can happen. Someone says abattoir is such a pretty word for slaughterhouse. Someone says mermaids are just fish ladies. I am so fucking vain, I cannot believe anyone is threatened by me. In New York, not everyone is forgiven. Dear New York, dear girl with a barcode tattooed on the side of your face and everyone writing poems about and inside and outside the subways, dear people underground in New York, on the sci-fi bridges and aisles of New York, on the rooftops of Chinatown where Miles Davis is pumping in, and someone is telling me about contronyms, how cleave and cleave are the same word looking in opposite directions. I now know bolt is to lock and bolt is to run away. That's how I think of New York. Someone jonesing for Grace Jones at the party and someone jonesing for Grace. That was Terrence Hayes reading his poem, New York Poem. So I wanted to ask you a little bit, maybe not just about this poem, but sure, about poetry. Yeah. Ask on my <laughs> You know, I love the play in this poem. I love the conjugation, let's call it, of Jacket, uh, of Jones at the end, jonesing for Grace Jones at the party and someone jonesing for Grace. Um, so beautiful. And I wonder how, you know, is play just part of the writing process, uh, not just for you, but writing writ large? Okay, so that's a good question. Because, you know, let me just say in general, I really do not look over my shoulder very much with the poems. So what I feel as I was reading it just now was just like those moments, which were just pretty true emotional feelings. And I think I was just waiting for a poem that would allow me to say that. So one of them is like, I am so fucking vain. I cannot believe anyone is threatened by me. So I read that line, and at first I'm editing it. Like, oh, you know, is that a clear statement? But it also is, even if it's a kind of vague statement, that idea of like uh, showing up at a party and thinking everybody's glad to see you, as opposed to some people thinking like, oh man, he's just gonna mess up everything. So so there's moments like that. Uh, and that's certainly like the, the contronym thing is same. Like, I think I just had a feeling about that. I think I was wanting to do something with Bolt and Bolt. And so there are opportunities to like, put certain kinds of impressions that maybe everybody has walking around or being at a party down inside the larger context where, so that's where that work comes into like the Miles Davis stuff. I am working on that and that is, uh, Although, you know, it is a slant on sort of things that are happening. It was a rooftop party in Chinatown, and there were speakers, and there was something like jazz pumping mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. while a bunch of people stood around on the roof. So, you know, that was just sort of given to me when I think sure. about the emotional stuff versus what's just going on. And what about the Miles Davis? Are, are we to, to think about jazz as an influence here, and, and how much or how so? 
again, I just think when I was recalling sort of the scaffolding of the poem, I mm-hmm. remembered that music. And maybe I just said to maybe I didn't pay attention that night. But I was like, well, if something was pumping in on a rooftop in Chinatown, what would it be? <laughs> yeah, and I was yeah. like, well, it's got to be Miles Davis. It's so be. I think that started. And then I started thinking about like looking out at those streets and the bridges mm-hmm. and all the different kinds of ways you can but get. But he, he has that contradictory, place. you know, like angry horn that's uh-huh. also sweet, you know right, what I mean? Right. That the poem is kind of playing with, tonally at least. So let me say this to you again, and I don't say this as a person who wrote the poem. I say it as a person who wrote it and forgot about it and is now looking at it anew. So I, I tend to think more about like the spirit of Grace Jones. Um, mm-hmm, sure. So that like the R in the poem is sort of tangled up in the whatever edginess she has. So not quite as cool and cool as Miles Davis, but cool, but also a little bit like whatever the shape of Grace Jones's haircut is, like that little slant on Angular, it. So, asymmetrical. Yeah, there you go. So there is a kind of asymmetrical personality, or you could say sure. asymmetrical blackness or whatever. You know, I never explicitly say black, but if you're thinking about the two who appear, Miles Davis and Grace Jones, I tend to think it ends somewhere up in her uh, her neighborhood. Well, and I, I like that it it takes us to these places that aren't... Uh, only physical places. Sure. I mean, there's Chinatown, but there's also uh, the sci-fi bridges. Mm-hmm. There's um, this other place you're trying to get. The I slaughterhouse, think it, which is yeah. the avatar. That's a place you <laughs> yeah, can go. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, underground in New York, the mm-hmm. sci-fi bridges and aisles of New York. And, you know, I love this idea of place, but also this idea of escape, which sure. is also in the poem and the bolt. Yeah, right. That's right. Of course, that is really how I think of New York. So that's what I mean about, like, you know, it's every poem is probably half true or mostly true built on a bed of, you know, imagined things or whatever. So I do tend to have that relationship where you want to run or you want to lock the door simultaneously. Um, so, I mean, I think about that in terms of, like, it's a fairly straightforward, certainly a more straightforward title than most of my titles. Yeah. And so I think that's why it is, because I'm like, well, this is a purely New York experience for me. If I was ever going to write a Frank O'Hara poem or mm-hmm. something even in the blood of uh, what I think cele- celebratory and a little bit melancholy in the way that Matthew's poem is, I think this must be uh, that. Because it isn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to pull out a lot of poems that move in the same way or even deal with place in the same way. Um, yeah, maybe I mean, they feel in the same way, but it's not the same kind of staging, I think. Well, the one thing, I, I had sort of two last questions. One mm-hmm. is, is there an underground in this poem, or is there an underground that leads to your other poems? And I was thinking especially about your sort of upcoming book, mm-hmm. American Sonnets from My Past and Future Assassin, right. a great title. Maybe thanks, you can, we can think about those t- that title, but yeah. then also think about this underground. I, I'm trying to yeah, sort of make yeah. this leap between this poem and those future poems. Well, it is that kind of, it's that between space, right? Like mm-hmm. the past and the future right. or the sonnet and the assassin of love and the sort of attack on one, you know, by someone who wants to wipe you out. Um, so that between spaces here is, it's the space that I like, which is the cleave and the cleave and the the bolt and the bolt. And I will say to you that the the reason I have an R in this poem and you actually know who this R is is because I didn't want to like call him out because when this sort of halfway experience happened, there was that moment where the sort of the R is just desperate for somebody like really to come home with him. And then it sort of doesn't happen. And so I was like, oh, you know, a little bit cooler, a little bit cooler. But at the night that it happened, I said, oh, I didn't see anything, man. I was, I was asleep. I was asleep on the couch, which I was for a little while during the party. <laughs> but uh, I later wrote the poem. <laughs> and so his response to get to this point was, one of his responses was like, man, yes, like an ode to ambivalence, yeah. which is both a critique and also a 
more a deep insight about sort of how I move through these poems because it is always that between space that I like, not really touching one full side of bolt or the other side of the word, but just sort of in the hallway between things. Uh, so I understood it, and I, I think I responded to it. I mean, I could think about other poems that I thought, well, what does it mean for me to be less ambivalent in a poem while also sort of really enjoying what metaphor does in terms of, as you said, about the ecstasy, uh, casting these multiple shadows around the word. So, so that's it. That's the underground is it literally that. I like that underground space. It's not. I like the subway. Actually, I really do. But it ain't quite hell, you know. It ain't quite <laughs> heaven. But it's like you're moving between those two worlds, you know, emerging sometimes, going a little bit deeper other times. And I do think of language as, you know, sort of working in the same way. Well, just to bring us back even to this idea of Greek myths, that's the mm, Orpheus that's space, right. Yeah, right? Yeah, I like Orpheus quite a bit. And he shows up in the other poem that's in The New Yorker, I think. Uh, it's like he invented writing or something like that. But, sure. uh, uh, but although in that poem, and generally when I think about Orpheus, I do have to say that I've decided that maybe Eurydice is actually the poet, that he's really not the poet. You know, she's the one that goes back and has to sit around and think about stuff. And he's like making music and running around on lesbos. <laughs> Noodling around, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, well, who's the real poet here you know and mm -hmm. so I sure I, it just changes my notion of him that doesn't make him any less interesting but it just changes my sense of their relationship about well the poet is the one who's abandoned you know not the one who's fought going out you know so it's just a kind of interesting idea that is in that poem I think just to end tell us about the at least the title of the sonnets book uh well that's it I mean I am trying to capture that between space like I want to be able to try to write sonnets for a figure a, a president uh, a lover, um, money, things that really try to wipe you out, you know. And so time is a big part of that. Like time is always trying to is wipe you out. Is that American? They're American sonnets, which, you know, I think well, of as a form, yeah. but also as an idea. It is an idea. Like there, there's 70 poems. I mean, I've written uh, over 200 of them. So I got the best 70, and there are 70 definitions is the best. That's what I'm working on now, like when people start asking me when the book is out. So... I, um, you know, if they follow the rules, they wouldn't be American science is my general sense of that. Right. Um, but they, you know, the Volta, the notion of changing one's mind, to me, feels pretty American, too. So if I start out saying, you know what, this person in power is really, I'll never say his name. I'll never call him a president. But at the end, somewhere that Volta means I'm going to have to turn some kind of corner on that. So I just find this to be still, even though the book's coming out, a good exercise, a good way to deal with um everything is asking you to see something one way or to respond in one particular way. And I just keep trying to like, you know, back off a little bit and see where we are. So that's what that title is doing. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Terrence. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me in. Thank you. New York Poem by Terrence Hayes, as well as Matthew Dickman's poem, Fire, can be found on newyorker.com. Matthew Dickman's most recent collection is Wonderland, forthcoming in March 2018. Terrence Hayes' latest books are American Sonnets, for my past and future assassin, and to float in the space between drawing and essays in conversation with Etheridge Knight, both forthcoming in 2018. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com 
with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>